Hello, thank you for visiting the podcast of the Vineyard Church in Campbellsville, Kentucky. If you haven't already, feel free to visit our audio archive at vineyardcampbellsville.org or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. And now here is this week's message brought to you by Senior Pastor Adam Russell. All right, everybody good? All right, hey, we're going to start sort of a new series here at the Vineyard this morning. And uh, we're going to spend a good bit of time here at the end of the year in the letter of Philippians. So if you're wondering where we're going to be from week to week, for the most part, we're just going to be in the letter of Philippians. Uh, We're going to get interrupted over the next few months by a couple guest speakers and a few special events. But by and large, this is where we're going to settle. So uh, you have some homework this week. And you actually have some homework going forward. Here's your homework this week and going forward. Number one, read the letter of Philippians. Uh, I read it this week. I'm a really slow reader. I'm one of those people who still mouths the words as I read along. My comprehension's through the roof. I just want to say that. But it took me about 15 minutes to read it, 15 or 16 minutes, and I'm a slow reader. So... Take 15 minutes this week, read the letter of Philippians, and then when you're done with it, read it again. Then the second thing you need to read this week is you need to read Acts chapter 16, because this is the story of when Paul actually went to Philippi and planted the flipping church that he writes the letter to. So it provides the background context. You really can't read the letter without having that Acts moment in your head. And it's one of the better stories in the book of Acts. So Acts 16, Philippians. Can we do that? We could do that. Totally do it. They're connected stories. All right, so um, let's get on with it. We're going to read six verses this morning. Six verses. This morning's message is entitled, Finish Work. This is how the letter begins. This letter is from Paul and Timothy, slaves of Jesus Christ. Anybody here ever tell anyone else that you're a slave of Jesus Christ? No, no, we don't do that anymore, do we? No, I'm, a, I'm God's favorite son. <laughs> you know, I'm God's favorite daughter. This language never gets put in anymore. I actually do think we've lost something in that. You can meditate on that later. This letter is from Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. I am writing to all God's holy people in Philippi who belong to Christ Jesus, including the church leaders and deacons. May God, our Father... And Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. Every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God. Whenever I pray, I make requests for all of you with joy. For you have been my partners in spreading the good news about Christ from the time that you first heard it until now. And I am certain that God, who began the good work within you, will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day that Christ Jesus returns. That'll be our text for the morning. First thing I want to say is anytime we're reading out of this letter, one of the things that you have to keep in your mind is that when Paul writes this, he's writing it from jail. So these words were penned in prison. And when we talk about prison in Paul's day, we also have to understand that it was not like jail in our own day. And let's just, let's just get this out there right now. A jail today is really bad. 
but it's nothing compared to what jail was like when Paul was in prison. There was no workout facility when Paul was in prison. And there was no cafeteria when Paul was in prison. There was no indoor plumbing. Uh, I bring this up because as bad as jail is today, prison in Paul's day was utterly miserable. It was basically a dungeon. Like whatever your mind goes to when you think of the word dungeon, that's the better picture. Uh, There were no lawyers to speak of. You didn't get a phone call. Uh, There was no food. There was nothing. There was nothing. In fact, this is another part we have to kind of keep in our mind when we read the letter of Philippians. In fact, if Paul was going to eat it all, it was because someone brought him food. So the state would throw you in jail, but the state didn't provide anything other anything for you. You just got thrown away, basically. And lots of people died in jail from starvation because they didn't have anyone to bring anything to them. And so if Paul was going to survive, it's actually because someone brought him something. In fact, it seems that in the first five verses here, that there's a little hint of that. Look at verse 5. He says, for you've been my partners in spreading the good news. Now, that word partner there, it has financial connotations to it. It isn't just like co-workers, but if you look at the text here a little closer, it actually has like a financial component to it. And one of the things we know that about Paul is that on various times, Paul did take up offerings and take them back to Jerusalem. Y'all remember that from the, from the book of Acts? Paul received an offering from all these churches and he took it back to Jerusalem. That could be what he's hinting here. But I think, I think what is more in play is that the Philippian church is a partner to him in that they had given offerings or sent money to him to actually support him and keep him alive while he was in jail. That's really what's probably most within view right here. So Paul's in jail. If somebody doesn't bring something to him, he's toast. And then I've said all of that to say that as bad as the circumstances are that this is being written in, being thrown in a dungeon... And he's been thrown in a dungeon, not because he committed a crime, but he was thrown in a dungeon because he was preaching the gospel. Preaching the gospel. I hope you notice that in the text this morning, that none of that seems to be dampening Paul's spirits. And in fact, if you look, look at verse 5. No, actually, verse uh, verse 4. Whenever I pray, I make all my requests uh, for all of you. He makes them with joy. And in fact, one of the things that we're going to see while we read the book of, or the letter of Philippians is that the word joy is a really important word in this letter. So Paul's in a dungeon. He's going to die unless people bring him stuff. People are bringing him stuff. And somehow he has connected to the joy of the Lord. It's amazing. It's amazing. To make this point All the more stark, uh, you also have to know that this is not Paul's first time in jail. In fact, it's part of your homework. That whole Acts chapter 16 thing was one of the first times that Paul was in jail. And in fact, in Acts chapter 16, it's the story of how Paul got thrown in jail in Philippi. I'll just tell you the story really quick. Paul and Silas were preaching the gospel throughout Philippi. And in the process of preaching the gospel... They were traveling around, and for several days, a fortune-telling slave girl followed behind them and kept shouting, basically, these guys are servants of God, and what they say is blah, blah, blah. 
Basically, she was telling the truth about them, but she was possessed by a demon. Do you guys remember this story? And Paul just became fatigued with it because he knew that it was a demon. He finally turns to this girl and he says, you know, devil, come out of this girl. Well, the girl got set free from the demonic oppression. And then at that point, the owners, the slave girl's owners, realized that without the demon, she couldn't tell fortunes anymore, right? They realized that their chance of making a profit were over. So they create quite a ruckus. And they go to the leaders there in the city of Philippi and they say, this Paul and this Silas character, they're dangerous dudes. They're preaching another king besides Caesar. And by the way, this is always the charge that's brought against Paul. He's preaching another king besides Caesar. He's saying that Jesus is the king and he gets thrown in jail. Y'all remember this? Now, Paul and Silas, they're in jail. And I love what it says in Acts chapter 16. It says at midnight, what did they start doing? Started singing some hymns. Because that's what you do when you're in a dungeon. And they didn't sing the blues, apparently. You know? They started singing some hymns. They started praising the Lord. I mean, imagine this. They were probably in stocks. They were probably in some kind of like wooden stocks locked down, sitting in their own filth. Right? I mean, if you can just imagine that. Like, where are you going to pee? On yourself. That's where you're going to pee. Imagine sitting there and and you've actually been thrown in jail and you're sitting in your own filth because you've actually done the work of the Lord. You set someone free, right? Goodness gracious. And you start singing, you start praising the Lord. And in the process of praising the Lord, uh, the Bible says that there was an earthquake there and that not just Paul and Silas, but everyone's prison doors flew open and everyone's chains fell off. It's a gospel moment. Right? Everyone's. Now, the jailer becomes concerned, right? And he becomes concerned because if all of these people leave, then I'm going to get blamed for it and I'm toast. And the jailer is just about to commit suicide with his own sword. And Paul and Silas run in and say, don't do it. This is the Lord, right? And they preach the gospel to him. He falls down at their feet and says, what must I do to be saved? They baptized that guy and his whole family. And basically, this is the beginning of the church in Philippi. Amazing stuff. Here's why I bring that story up. Two moments of prison here. I bring that moment up because on the one hand, Paul and Silas, they get thrown in jail and they sing to God and God delivers them miraculously. And then on the next, Paul is back in jail Probably stinging, still joyful, but the cell doors are not flying open. And in fact, the truth is, Paul's never coming out alive again when he writes this letter. That's the now and the not yet of the kingdom. And we have to hold that in our mind as we read this letter or we'll miss the gravity of it all. On one hand, you sing and you get set free. And on the other hand, you end up back in jail and you sing... And nothing moves, right? All right. Well, our key text this morning will be chapter 1, verse 6. Paul writes this. He says, I'm certain that God, who began the good work within you, will continue his work until it's finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. God, who began the good work, will finish the good work. Tell you a little story. Um, every, Every year... I try to set up a little something to develop the staff 
here at the vineyard. Something that would maybe equip us a little bit, keep us sharp, and uh, keep us growing. And uh, last year, last year we spent a couple days, and I had Pastor come in, Pastor Ray come in, and uh, I had him do strength finders with us. Um, anybody here ever done strength finders? Anybody know? Everybody know, know what strength finders is? Okay, I'll tell you what strength finders is because not everyone's do. Strength finders is basically, it's like an assessment tool, and it, it's kind of like it's kind of like some of the personality tests that you've probably taken. And, and the slight difference is that it's less personality-based and it's the language anyway is more strength-based. And according to Strength Finders, there's like 32 key strengths that everybody has at a certain level. And uh, not all of us are super proficient in all of them. In fact, everybody has about five, you know, you have about five that are your key strengths. And they're usually pretty different from other people. And if you know those strengths, then it allows you to name it. And I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but when you can name something, then you can notice something. And then when you can notice something, then you can actually build on it and and lean into it, if that makes sense. And sort of the idea behind strength finders is rather than always working on our weaknesses, why don't we just key in on our strengths and go with that? It's not a bad idea, actually. And then in terms of a team, you know, there's a staff here at the Vineyard. We work together. It's, all, it's also really important for us to kind of know what each other's strengths are. Because sometimes the other person isn't being annoying. They're just operating out of their strength. I'm trying to be generous. Sometimes Andrew isn't defective. It's just his strength that's unnamed. No, that was mean. So we all took a test. It was 60 minutes, and then we did a bunch of exercises over the course of the day, and we talked about the results. Well, okay, so anyway, what does that have to do with this? Well, here, here, I'll just go over here. Um, anyway, my top strength is something called Activator. That's my number one strength in Strength Finder. It's called Activator. And I'll just read you. You might be thinking, what is Activator? I'll read you the little thing off the website. Here it is. This is, this is how Activator starts. When can we start? This is a recurring question in your life. You're impatient for action. You may concede that analysis has its uses or debate, and discussion can occasionally yield some valuable insights, but deep down, you know that only action is real. Only action can make things happen. Only action leads to performance. Once a decision is made, uh, you cannot not act. Others may worry there are still some things we don't know, but that doesn't seem to slow you down. If the decision has been made to go across town, you know that the fastest way to get there is to go from stoplight to stoplight. You're not going to sit around waiting until all the lights have turned green. Besides, in your view, action and thinking are not opposites. In fact, guided by your activator theme, you believe that action is the best device for learning. That's my number one strength, right? Well, by now you might have guessed it. I'm an activator, and what that means is I'm really good at starting things. This is my number one strength and strength finder. Uh, Maintaining and finishing things, not my strength. (laughs) But if you want to start something, I'm a monster. It's one of the reasons I've got ideas all the time. I've got a million ideas. If you don't have any ideas, you can come talk to me. I can give you ideas. And in fact, when we did this with our team, we noticed that our team was really diverse. And if you want to get something started around here, you just need to come hang out with me or Labriska. She and I are really high activators. That's part of our strengths here at the Vineyard. In fact, if it wasn't for me and Bree, probably nothing would, would ever get started here at the Vineyard. 
This is not a joke. Most of what you see around here was actually probably started by me and Bree. But here's the other thing you need to know. It was almost never finished by me and Bree. Our team is really, really diverse. And one of the things that became clear is on, that on our team, we have some finishers on our team. And the number one finishers on our team were Hannah and Bobby. And if I remember right, Hannah has a strength called responsibility. It's like one of your way up there. And here's the thing about responsibility. You guessed it. Hannah can't feel good about something. She has a need to see it all the way through. And in fact, my activator could be really good and it can be really bad for Hannah's responsibility. Because my activator is always talking about ideas and I can just be spitballing ideas. She thinks I'm serious and internally she's feeling the need to get it going and get it finished. We've lived in a codependent, amazing relationship for going on 20 years now. Another person here who has the need to get things done is Bobby. Bobby is really, one of his main strengths, if I remember right, is achiever. Am I right? Yes, I'm right. And achievers can't feel good about something that's left undone, right? Because it has not been achieved. So here at the Vineyard, on the staff, we have starters, me and Bree, and we got finishers, Hannah and Bobby. One of the things I've noticed is that probably most of us It's not just true of what's on the staff. It's probably pretty much true here at the Vineyard as well with everybody else in the seats. Some of us are starters and some of us are finishers, right? That's the way it tends to go. But Paul says something really, really great here. And he says that in Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 that God is both the starter and the finisher. Now you need to let that wash over you just a little bit. In fact, I'll put it back up. You need to let it wash over you a little bit because if you will, you can let go of some of your anxiety. If God is the starter and if God is the finisher, you can let go of a lot of your anxiety. Here's why. Because number one, all of this is God's work. All of this is God's work. And by all of this, I mean... This kingdom thing that we live in. This, this being conformed to the likeness of Jesus. This seeing God's kingdom emerge among us. This, this trying to live in a new way. This isn't my idea and it isn't your idea. It's not based upon my strength and it's not even based upon your strength. And it's not even based upon our strength so much as it is. It's based upon God's strength. This is God's work. And sometimes we lose sight of that. Sometimes we even begin to believe that it is our work. Sometimes we struggle and we wear ourselves out trying to make things happen. But this is God's work. That's what Paul says. He's going to start it. He's going to finish it. The life of the kingdom is ultimately God's idea. He's the one who initiated it. He began it. He spoke creation into existence. The Bible says that he formed you in your mother's womb. He sent Jesus. He raised up the disciples and the apostles. And he arranged the circumstances of your lives so that you could hear the gospel and believe. This is God's work. Make no mistake. Now here's the thing. Here at the Vineyard, we do believe in human free will. But we also believe in God's sovereign choice and his sovereign ability to make things happen and to bring things to fruition. And we can't let go of the one for the other. The truth is, none of us were looking for salvation. None of us were looking for God. The more true thing is that salvation came searching for us and we woke up to the fact that God was right next door. 
That's the truth. This is God's work. This is God's work. He started it. Now I want you to consider Paul in prison again. Because that just hangs over this text so big. Imagine that he's in prison. He is away from the church he planted in Philippi. Not only is he away from the church, but he's never going back to that church. And on the inside, he even kind of knows it. Imagine that he's not able to teach them. Imagine that he's not able to make sure that false teachers don't come in and pervert the gospel. Imagine that he's not able to oversee the health of the baby church. See, he's able to keep joy because in his head and in his heart, he knows that this is not his work. It is God's work. Here's one of the things I see in this text that I think is really practical for us this morning joy seems to be really connected to being able to trust god paul's got joy here this morning and he's mostly out of control of all of his circumstances at this point and i believe that he's able to have joy because in his head and in his heart he really does believe that it's god's work that's not his church in philippi that's not his to maintain it's not his to grow it's not his to ensure it's it's god's It's not his to see happen in his own life or in his own heart. It's God's. He seems to be really trusting God. And I think there's a huge connection there. The ability to live in joy that supersedes circumstances is really rooted in, do I I trust God at all? That's it. The more we trust him, the more that joy is a possibility. The more I feel responsible for, the more I'm going to be miserable. You can count on it. The things that you think are really, really up to you are the things that end up killing you. Now, does this mean that we're not responsible? Does this mean that we just throw responsibility out the window? Well, of course not. Paul's not passive. That's why he's praying all the time. But it doesn't make us owners of the work. It doesn't make us owners of the work. We don't start it. We respond to it. We respond to it. Now, let's just take this another direction. Uh, Let's just talk about parents and children here for a minute. Parents, uh, you need to teach your kids how to pray. And parents, you need to talk to your kids about Jesus. And you need to model and demonstrate the good news of the kingdom of God to your kids. And parents, you ought to pray for your kids every single day. But you also have to let go of worry because it's God's work. You can't make them be Christians. Nothing that you do will make them be Christians. Nothing that you don't do will keep them from being Christians. This is God's work. You create the best environment that you know how. You respond to God as much as you know how every single day in your house. You pray for your kids. You teach them to pray. You try to instill a love for the for the gospel and a, and a love for the scriptures. And at a certain part in your heart, you have to know that you're not ultimately responsible for them. God is. It's God's work. Is there a lot of tension there? You better believe it. Listen, that's how it is in everything. This is God's work. He loves the church. He loves you. He loves your family. This is God's work. Second thing I see in this little verse Chapter 1, verse 6. As I see a whole lot of process and I see a whole lot of progress. God is the starter, but he's also the finisher. 
Paul says that he's certain that the one who began the work will finish it. If Paul says that he's certain that the one who began the work will finish it, the implication is this. There's a, there's a lot of unfinished work between starting and finishing. Right? In fact, why don't you do this? We're going to do one of those super terrible church things right now, okay? Turn, turn to your neighbor and, and tell your neighbor, I'm a work in progress. Turn, now turn to your neighbor and say, you're a work in progress. Oh my gosh, I can't believe we just did that. Somebody smacked me. This is another place where the now and the not yet of the kingdom come to the surface. Everybody in this room right now is in process. Here's another way to say that. Everybody here is under the influence of grace. And everybody here is at different stages. So what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, here's what that means. Everybody in here should give everybody else a little bit of grace. Like seriously, cut each other some slack. God has started something in your life. He's going to finish it. That means there's a lot of unfinished work right now. Everybody in here is at different stages and at different places with who God is and what's happening in your life. And so therefore, everybody else ought to give everybody else a whole lot of grace and cut everybody some slack. Now, let me, let me just interject the counterbalance word. Does that mean that we should cut everybody some slack and just let them go out and ruin their lives? Of course not. This is not about letting people go out and ruin their lives. And it's not about uh, letting people be terrible people. Not that you can really control people anyway. But, but here's what it does mean. It means that we have to let go of the harsh judgments that are in our hearts about other people. Even if they're doing really stupid things. We have to let go of it. It also means that we can let go of unhealthy comparisons. Unhealthy comparisons. Here's something that we tend to do. We tend to do this. We tend to look at others through our own experience. We do this all the time, by the way. This is not just Christians. This is everybody in the world. We tend to look at others through our own experience and then that tends to manifest itself in two different ways. Number one, we either judge other people with this idea, like why aren't you further along? Because, because we tend to judge everybody else through my own experience. If I'm doing pretty well, I tend to look at other people and go, David, why aren't you further along, right? Because I'm really further along, David. <laughs> or, or... Or, we compare ourselves to other people. We look at others based on our own experience. And we think, gosh, I'm never going to get there. And then we end up judging God. And we think, why am I not further along? These dirt bags over here, they're like, they're way ahead of me. So we either end up judging others or we judge God. And the truth is, we're usually doing a bit of both. Those are just extreme examples. But we can, let, we can let go of all of this if we just really settle into the reality that God started with us and He's not going to give up on us. There's a lot of process in this verse. I also see a lot of progress in this verse. Paul says that we'll be in process until the day we're finished when Christ returns. And 
when I hear this anyway, and maybe you don't read it this way, but when I hear this, it's a word of hope for me. It's hope because there's still time. Uh, It's hope because it means that the concrete in my life is still wet, if I can put it that way. And it's hope because my sinful patterns are not going to be my final shape and my failures and my weaknesses are not going to be the form into which I'm cast into eternity. There's a ton of hope there. Paul says in Romans chapter 8 that God has predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. That's how we're going to turn out, guys. That's how we're going to turn out. All the places where I'm not like Jesus, God is working it out in me right now. And on the end, and in the end, you and I are going to be conformed into the likeness of Jesus. It's good news. But back to Paul in jail. At times, God will deliver. And then at other times, we sit in prison. But through it all, it's all God's work. And so we can't lose heart. And here's what I want to say this morning with as much clarity as I can. Just because things are going miraculously in our life, it doesn't mean that we've arrived on the one hand. And just because things are miserable, it doesn't mean that we've been forsaken. That's what Philippians 1.6 is really getting at. Just because things are great, it doesn't mean that we've arrived. And just because things are miserable, it doesn't mean we've been forsaken. The truth is, church, our story is way bigger than any one moment. And the truth is, our story is way bigger than any one season. And God isn't finished with us yet. Sometimes we struggle because... Sometimes we struggle to start things because of fear and insecurity. We don't feel like we know what to do, so we don't start. Or we don't feel like we know what the next step is, and so we don't start. See, but God is confident. He knows what he's doing, so he's a starter. And he didn't start a kingdom work in you to leave you incomplete. He is confident in his ability, but he's also confident in your value and worth. And then sometimes we struggle completing things because we get bored or tired or discouraged. We get bored with the apparent lack of success. We get tired with the work. We struggle with showing up. But God does not get tired. And God is never bored. And he is not discouraged. The 80 years of your life. And the 80 years of my life. They're not even a second to him. He is so, so patient. So if everything's going well. We haven't arrived. And if everything is miserable, we've not been forsaken. The the God who has started the work in us, he's going to bring it all the way around to completion. Amen? Amen, amen. Hey, if you're on the ministry team this morning, come on up. Thank you again for stopping by the podcast at the Vineyard Church in Campbellsville, Kentucky. If you'd like to keep up with what's happening here at the Vineyard, You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Until next time, peace to you.